Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 12. Peter says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, and you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us this month, we are going through... Uh, several themes of Advent. There are four particular themes of Advent, if you're familiar with the, the weeks of Advent. And the four themes are hope, joy, peace, and love. And as we uh, are looking through the book of First Peter, we're seeing some of those, uh, those themes pop up. And we looked at hope a few weeks back. Pastor Chris looked at chapter 1 and pointed out uh, the, the living hope that we have through the work of Jesus, namely uh, through his work of the cross and resurrection. But uh, in order for him to die and rise, he must have been born. Last week we looked at joy from the next few verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. and We saw the joy that, that comes uh, to us uh, through Christ, the, the joy that you can have uh, even in the midst of trials, which... Peter is writing about there in chapter 1 in the book as a whole, really. This morning, we want to look at our next theme of peace. Pastor Chris read for us verses 8 through 12. And as we looked, if we looked at all of those uh, four verses together, uh, we would see this this idea of of unity in Christ. We would see in verse 8 that there's a a measure of, of harmony that exists, this unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. In chapter, or verse 9, we see this idea of this, this blessing, this inheritance that, that we have uh, in Christ, the blessing by uh, the end of that, the obtaining a blessing, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Then in verses 10 through 12, which we'll spend our time today on, uh, Peter is quoting here, from Psalm chapter 34. And he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, and then he proceeds to say three things. And you can note it with the repeated uh, two words, let him. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Uh, Verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Whoever desires to love life. This is an an act of the will. Uh, We must desire or decide to love life. You see, if we look at life as something just to endure, we will see life as a burden. It will be burdensome to us, just kind of getting through. If we look at life as something to escape, and we'll constantly be, be on the run, trying to avoid. 
or we can choose to enjoy life. We can see life as something that is ultimately, we can know that life is something ultimately in control of by God, that he is sovereign over all things. He who desires to love life and see good days. See good days. What's a good day? If you ask different people what a good day is, they might come up with very different opinions, right? Your interests probably are not quite like someone else's interests, right? Uh, Some of you, your idea of a good time or a good day would not very much be my idea of a good time, right? And vice versa, right? Or, or the person sitting next to you or your wife's idea or, or, or whatever, right? Uh, we, could, we could go on down the list of, of defining what a good day would be uh, or what it would look like. Surely it would involve things of, of, of pleasure, of success, of doing something that, that's meaningful, right? Humanly speaking, th- those might be things that make the list of a, of a good day. But here, uh, Peter speaks of, of the good days, that he would have, a good, they'd have good days. And you look back to verse 9, look in your Bible at verse 9. It says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The, the blessing is verse 10, whoever desires uh, to love life and see good days. That, that's the blessing. The blessing is the good days. This is God's gift to us of good days. That doesn't mean ease. It doesn't mean comfort. And we need to be careful when we think about the word blessing. Uh, sometimes we use that word in the context of, of only the, the positive things, right? Uh, there can be this conflation of terms when we talk about blessing and, and good together. Meaning, when I say good, I mean good like um, positive or advantage or without problem, right? So sometimes, well, something good will happen and we'll say we're really blessed. Well, that's not the only time you're blessed, right? You, 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 we do know that, right? We, we do agree that, that all of life is a blessing, right? But the good life that he's talking about is obtaining this blessing from the Lord, It is true that God is good and what he does is good. That's absolutely true. But sometimes we conflate the term blessing and and good. And if we do that, then we come to this problem that the presence of suffering, the presence of suffering would would cause us to question whether or not our life is really blessed, right? Or whether or not our life is really good if we conflate those two ideas. So if you make that equation, then only a life void of hardship will be deemed good. Right? So you look at your life and you say, I haven't had a good life. Because why? Because it has hardship in it. Or because you haven't had it easy. Which, like, there's a club for that, right? It's called human existence, right? <laughs> that you haven't had it easy. Most of you haven't had it easy. Some of you have had it harder than others. That's absolutely true. Many of you have had it terribly more difficult than, than others. That's true. But if we see the good life or the good days as only days apart from hardship, two things are going on there. One is that's not real. <laughs> that's not the truth. Th- those aren't real things. Like your life is part 
hardship. That, that is part of what life is, but it's also a misunderstanding of what a good life is to begin with. Meaning this, if you read through the Bible, you find out that often our idea of a good life does not line up with, let's start with, the life of Jesus or the life of the apostles or the life of the early church. Right? Suffering marked those lives. Hardship marked those lives. The Bible is written to sinners and sufferers. It's written about sinners and sufferers. That is the reality that we live in. And so this idea of the good life being void of those things misunderstands what the Bible even refers to and what the Bible is calling us to. One writer, commentator says this, that the good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. Peter goes on to give, give these three points that we just noted with the term, with the, the phrase, let him, about the blessing of these good days. First, whoever desires good days must, verse 10, let him control his tongue. Let him control his tongue from evil, keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Again, if you look back to verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When you say reviling, some of your Bibles might have a different word here. It's not a word we use very much these days. It's talking about slander. It's talking about insults, verbal abuse. Saying don't return that for that, but on the contrary, bless. You also might notice as we read those Verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 all have a, a repeated word, evil. Evil, over and over again. Peter is, is identifying this contrast where he's talking about something that's evil and he's calling us to something very different, specifically in regard to our words. It's evil to speak deceitfully, but rather we're to follow the example of Jesus. Look back to chapter 1 of First Peter and look at verse 22. Check that. Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. This is talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus is the example, that he, he, he left us an example of how we are to live. One of those is how we are to use our tongue, how we are to speak. It's not to be speaking deceitfully. It's to control our tongue. And remember, Peter's writing, right? Remember anything about Peter? <laughs> Peter had a knack for, for kind of getting ahead of himself a little bit or saying the thing that maybe everyone else was thinking, but he actually said it, Right? He had, he had a knack for that. And so it, it's, it's not ironic, but it, it's, it's right that someone who, who knows about the control of his tongue is saying that that's what's involved here. That if someone wants, uh, wants to love life, wants to enjoy the, the blessing of God, then the control of the, their tongue is necessary. James chapter 3, you can just write down that chapter, verses 1 through 12, uh, warns us about our tongue. You might remember that chapter. 
It talks about our, our, the, the power that our words carry, that, that our tongue is actually dangerous, that, it, that, that as a spark can light a fire, so too can our, our tongue ignite a world of iniquity. Words have power. They have the potential to destroy. There's danger. The, the words have, uh, there's danger of words um, being used inappropriately. And this is nothing new, is it? If you think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, Satan said something inappropriate, right? He said something wrong. He lied to Eve. This is nothing new of people misusing their, their, their words, not controlling their words. Yet it seems today, in our day and age, with the advent of social media, there are more and more opportunities for people to quote-unquote speak their mind or to tell it like it is. And not only are there more opportunities, there's more acceptance of it, as though this is appropriate behavior. Now, these platforms, social media, and their use of it um, is only increasing. You know that, right? This isn't going away. But as it increases, so too, it seems, is the lack of self-control over our words. Our use of social media exemplifies the absence of nearly any what would seem internal resistance to guard our words, to control our tongue. Yes, it's not verbal, it's written. The principle is the same. This really is, is a matter of self-control, isn't it? When we say controlling our tongue, we're talking about self-control. Uh, Timothy Keller writes about self-control, and he defines it as the ability to choose the urgent over the important thing. Self-control in general. He says that the opposite of self-control is a driven, impulsive, uncontrolled person. You seen that? <laughs> the, the idea of not being able to control what we're saying or what, we're, what messages we are sending out. We know that Galatians chapter 5 tells us that self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Which means it is, it is the Spirit's work in the life of a Christian that could ever control their tongue. Because James tells us that, that no man can control their tongue. It's an unruly evil. Like left to ourselves, yes, we, we are impulsive. We say whatever we want to say. We don't care who hears it. We don't care what damage gets done. But the fruit of the Spirit changes all of that. Unfortunately, in our society today, many people, many leaders, many popular figures only prolif- make this matter worse by their behavior, making this kind of verbal carelessness a cultural norm. But for the Christian, guarding our speech, listen, it's, it's not some kind of political correctness. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not even just talking about being polite. We're actually talking about a virtue of godly wisdom. Listen to, to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. We would do well to hear the words of James, chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, and slow to anger. Most of us can identify with this, right? Most of us at some point in our lives have, have had that moment where the, the words come out, right? Whether it's, again, whether it's verbal or whether we're typing it out, right? And we know the regret, we know the pain, we know the, the reality of what our words can do. And if you're in this company, then, then here's a prayer that, Jane, that David prays in Psalm chapter 41 that maybe you can add to your prayers. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That be a prayer that, that you would pray. We think about this, this idea of loving life, of good days. What, what does it involve? Peter points out that, that our words matter to control our tongue. May God help us. Secondly, Peter points out, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. We must hate evil and do good. To turn away. Uh, the, old, the old King James might say eschew uh, or shun or to avoid. Not just because it's wrong, but because we hate it. I don't know if we always view sin that way. And I, I, I can identify with this. It's not wrong to avoid sin because it's wrong. That's not wrong to do that. But additionally, do we turn away from it, not just because it's wrong, but because we actually hate it? But because we actually think that there is something better. They actually see the sin or engage in whatever, and, and we say, it's not just I'm not doing that because I know it's wrong to do it. I'm not doing it because I hate it. I agree with God about it. I'm saying the same thing that God says about that behavior. There's a man named Job. You might remember that story. The very first chapter, the very first verse tells us some things about Job. And one of the things that it tells us it was that he turned away from evil. I remember one preacher saying that, that, that this was to mean that it made him sick to be in the presence of evil. He, he couldn't stand to be in the presence of evil. Hate evil. But there's a second part. It's not just enough to hate something, but what? Do good. Turn away from evil and do good. It's one thing to turn. It's another thing to do good, to do what's profitable, to do what's beautiful. You might say, well, I'm not part of the problem anymore. I'm turning away from it. That's excellent. But the next part is to actually do something productive, right? It's not good enough just to not do it. It's to do something that is profitable. The Apostle Paul lists in a, a number of Christian virtues in chapter 12 of his book. His, his uh, <clears throat> letter to the Romans. And in verse 9, he says this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Again, we see this, this contrast between abhorring or turning from evil, doing what is good. He writes to the Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to every one. To one another, to Christians, and to everyone, to the world. We, we should care about that, right? 
That's what the scriptures are saying. We should care that the good is being done, not just to, to our brothers and sisters, but to the world. Whether they know Jesus or not, we care about others. We care about doing good for others. We hate evil and we do good. Finally, we see this. Seek and pursue peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, Romans chapter 14 says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Seek and pursue peace. What is, what is peace? Well, uh, peace could be defined as, as wholeness uh, or well-being, quietness, rest, harmony, tranquility. There's some different ideas of peace, right? Uh, there is the, the self-centered peace. Uh, maybe you can imagine um, a middle-aged man uh, married with four children who, um, uh, grump, in his grumpy state, might uh, exclaim to his children, can I just get some peace and quiet? Not, not this middle-aged man. <laughs> I've, I've heard of people saying that. That would, be a, that would be a self-centered peace, right? It would be a peace that's saying, I want, I want quiet. I want peace. I want there to be nothing that's disrupting me. Right? That's a self-centered peace. Uh, there's an idealistic peace that would say, can't we all just get along? Can't the world just get along? Can't we just all hold hands? I mean, we all bleed the same. We're all made by God. Like, can't we all just get along? That, that's idealistic because it's missing what the actual problem is. And there is a problem. And then there is a realistic peace that says, can we actually have a measure of calmness and rest even when things aren't as they should be? Does that exist? Is there that kind of peace out there? I can't fix the world. You can't fix the world. You can't make all your problems go away. So if my peace is dependent upon everybody doing what I want, that's going to fall short. If it's dependent on the world getting fixed, that peace isn't going to come. But if there's a way for there to be peace, even in the chaos, what about that kind of peace? That would be peace we'd want to pursue, wouldn't it? That would be peace that we would want to know. You see, peace is not our default. It's not, it's not the default human experience. It isn't. Conflict is. Chaos is. And the reason is that there is a problem. Uh, we don't just have peace. And you might say, well, why don't we? Right? We've put a man on the moon. We put a computer in your pocket. Like, and we can't get the Jews and the Palestinians to get along. Like, why can't we do this? Like, we can do so many things. Why can't we just have, have peace on this earth? Well, peace requires attention. It requires intention. It is tenuous. It is fragile. It is difficult. And the reason that we don't have the peace is because there is something that is wrong. And we know that fundamentally that is sin. Right? That, that's a Sunday school answer, but it is the answer. It is the answer of why we don't have peace. It's because there is a, a conflict between us and God, between the world and God. We read in the pages of Genesis chapter 3 
that all was right in the world. God was dwelling with man. God had created a good world. Everything was good, very good, in fact. And man and, and God lived together. And then enter the serpent. The serpent whispers lies into the ear of, of Eve, and she disobeys God's one, one rule and offers the fruit to Adam, who disobeys God's one rule. And we find in the book of Genesis that as they eat of that fruit, that their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Why would it say that? The innocence was lost. They knew they had done wrong. There was shame. They needed to be hidden now. They needed to cover themselves, which they did with fig leaves. The relationship between God and man is broken. And humanly speaking, it is irreplaceable. This has been called the vandalism of shalom. That man left to himself now is damned. So what is our hope? Is there hope? That's the problem. What's the hope? Well, there is provision. But there are some who, who think they have peace, but don't have peace. So in the book of Jeremiah, twice, in chapter 6 and then in chapter 8, Jeremiah says that there are those who will say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What's he talking about here? There were Jewish leaders who were proclaiming a false confidence of peace to the people of Israel. There was no peace, and they were telling them that there was. They were suggesting that somehow they were okay, and yet in reality, they were under God's judgment and there were going to be problems. Today, there are many who are going through life with false peace. They've assumed that they're okay with God. Maybe their life has not had a lot of conflict. Maybe they've had an easy life. Maybe they've had financial blessing, or they've had good health, or they've had acceptance from other people. Maybe they think they're, they're doing good self-righteously. They think, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well off. God must think I'm good. That is a false sense of peace. There are many who will on the last day, Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 7, will say to the Lord, 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 didn't I do all these things for you? Right? They thought they were okay. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. It's the point. The point is there are some who are going through life believing that they are at peace with God when they have no real confidence for that peace. There is a provision of peace, but it's not by someone just saying, peace, peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah prophesied about coming peace. When we hear him say this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There is peace. There is peace that has come. John Piper says it this way, God's purpose is not to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. The key to peace is keeping together what the angels kept together, the glory of God and the peace to man. The heart, a heart bent on sharing God's glory will know the peace of God. So what are those two things? Luke 2.14, right? 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As we think about Christmas, we think about the one who came, this Jesus who came to be the Prince of Peace, who brings peace to us here and now, but ultimately will bring peace to the world. This is the message of Christmas. And as Jesus went through his life, he gave this assurance to his disciples. I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In another place he says, I give peace, not like the world gives peace do I give it? It's something different. So how does this peace come? Well, it first comes as we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes through being justified. Justified means to be declared righteous or to be declared just in the eyes of God. It means that God sees you as righteous, even though you are in fact a sinner. How could God do that? Through Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin what? for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. This is double imputation. We get God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and Christ gets our sin. Christmas tells us that Jesus has come so that we could be made right with God. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to make peace with God and us. He's doing the reconciling. He's doing the peacemaking. By being justified, we mean that we move from being the enemies of God to the friends of God. From under the wrath of God to under the grace of God. From condemnation to acceptance. From fear to rest. <clears throat> Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Peace with God is the foundation of for all other peace. Meaning, you cannot have any other peace with other people until you know the peace, that you are at peace with God. And because we have peace with God, then we can have peace with others. Throughout the pages of the New Testament, we are called to be at peace with one another. Places like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. One dictionary says that peace is not merely the elimination of discord, but the harmony and the true function of the body of Christ. You see, peace with others is, is what characterizes the life of a Christian. And that's why peace among Christians is a terrible testimony of who God is. But the only way that we can be at peace with one another is if we've had been made at peace with God. There is one caveat to this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's the reality, and some of you have experienced this already in your life. There are some people that you cannot live at peace with. They, they are bent on being, uh, not, not desiring peace for whatever reason. 
No matter what you do, peace does not come. So Romans chapter 12 is saying, as much as depends on you, you do your responsibility. You can't change someone else. You can't make someone be at peace with you. But you can do what you're supposed to do. You can take the steps that you're supposed to take. You can live in a way, as much as depends on you, that there could be peace. And finally, we can know the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4 is our great hope here. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Most of you have heard those verses before. I would just encourage you, if you're into scripture memory, those are verses to memorize. Those are, those are verses to call upon regularly. What Paul is saying to us is that there is a peace that goes beyond our understanding. There's a kind of peace that is unexplainable. There's a kind of peace that, that normally you would be a basket case and somehow, some way, you're able to hold it together. Not of your own accord. And it's not as though there aren't things that are hard. It's not as though there aren't things to be anxious about. It's not as though there, there isn't things to worry about or things to fear. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that you don't have those things. Those things do exist. But God calls us to do something about it. In the church, sometimes we get a little weird about talking about anxiety and about depression, about worry and those sorts of things because we might say, well, I know that's not right for me to do. Well, here's the reality. We all have a measure of anxiety. We all have a measure of, of wondering what's going to happen next. We all have a measure of saying, man, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the future. We all have a little bit of intrepidation about things that might come our way. That is a reality of the human experience as a fallen person. So it, we're not saying as a Christian, you, no, it doesn't exist. No, it does exist, but what do you do with it? That's the question. And that's what Paul is pointing us to today in, first, in Philippians chapter 4. He says, don't, don't go on with that anxiety. Pray about it. Last week we talked about Jesus in the garden, Right? Sweating drops of blood. I'm not talking about clinical definitions of anxiety. I'm saying that's in the realm of what we would normally call anxious, right? And what does he do with that? He prays. That's what Paul says right here. Don't be anxious. Pray. Take your worries or to go to another place. 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Casting all your, in the ESV, it says all your anxiety if you're not supposed to have anxiety at all, then what is the Bible talking about casting it? It's there. What do we do with it? How can we have peace even when these things are, are rising up in us? Paul says you take it to God in prayer. Or to use a modern translation, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him for you are his personal concern. Instead of worrying, instead of anxiety, we pray, and the peace of God which guards our minds comes to us. You're familiar with the, the hymn writer 
for it is well with my soul. Most of you know that story. A businessman, a lawyer from Chicago, who was in Chicago, his business suffered a tragedy uh, concerning a, a fire. One of his sons died of pneumonia. He sent his family uh, across to Europe in 1873. That ship sank. 313 passengers were on board. His wife and four daughters, the four daughters drowned. His wife was saved. After experiencing all of that kind of hardship, four days later, he himself crossed the Atlantic. And when they got to the point where that boat had sank, the captain told him where that was. And it was believed, based on the testimony of his daughter, who was born after the fact, that it was there at that place that he penned the words of the now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And he wrote this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. In the midst of great sorrow, there was this measure of peace, this measure of of knowing that it is well with his soul. It might not be well in his life, it's well with his soul. Let me ask you, is it well with your soul? Do you know the peace of God today? Do you, know, do you know if you have peace with God today? Maybe you're here today for the first time. You've never heard uh, of Jesus. you never heard what Jesus came to do. I want to tell you that Christmas, for all the joy there is, for all the fun there is, Christmas is about bringing mankind to God, reconciling man with God. Jesus did that through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and offers to you the peace with God that you can lay your head on your pillow at night and know that you're right with God. You might not be right with anybody else, but you're right with God. And having that peace, then you can live differently with others. And ultimately, in the face of great trial, great suffering, you can know that it's well with your soul. You can have the peace of God. Close, looking at back at 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter ends by saying this. Here's the assurance. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He hear, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sees, God hears, God acts, and he did so at Christmas for you. God, we're thankful for the peace that you have brought through your son. And some of us today uh, might question whether or not we have peace with you. Are we right with you? We might think we know you, but do you know us? God, we know the scriptures are written that those who believe would know that they have eternal life. So God, I pray today for those who who may be questioning that, that they would uh, seek you out, confessing their sins and asking for forgiveness, that they might know, they might know the Son, know your son, Jesus. And by knowing your son, they will have life. For those today who are having trouble living at peace with those around them, God, we pray that that they would seek peace as much as depends upon them, that they would pursue it, and that you might bless that. For those who are in trouble today, experiencing difficulty and sadness, we pray that in acts of faith, that they will bring their requests to you Instead of worrying, instead of being led away by by anxieties and worries into doubts and fear, that they would 
lean into you today and experience the peace that you give them as they roll their burdens over to the one who says, my burden is light. God, would you help us? Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.